Hey folks, I'm Fabio Lomolino. And I'm John Gorman, and welcome to the first episode of Insight Download. So the purpose of this podcast is pretty simple and straightforward. We're going out into the world to download the insights of some of the most curious and inquisitive minds that we know. We hope to personally grow and benefit from those conversations, but we're also going to be editing and sharing them online so that we can help disseminate these ideas into the networks and communities that we really care about. We're going to be hearing from folks from many different fields and disciplines, including in our first three conversations, we've talked to somebody who runs a super innovative community-based psychiatric rehabilitation program. We've talked to two really fascinating yoga teachers who are also amateur philosophers and psychiatrists who are understanding like these really interesting ways in which people learn and grow uh, and the role that discipline and failure have to do in that growing process. And then finally, to set up our conversation today, we sat down um, with Dr. Lisa Schulman, a neurologist at the University of Maryland Medical Center, who is a renowned expert in movement disorders, but after losing her husband, trained the tools of science and research onto her own brain and her own experience to try to understand scientifically, neurologically, what the experience of, of loss is like. Um, and yeah, let's jump into that first conversation. John, what, what, what are your highlights coming out of that conversation? With Lisa, what really stood out for you? Well, the first thing that really stood out to me was just what a, a warm and lovely person she she was. I really enjoyed spending time with her and getting to chat with her a bit. One thing I've really been thinking about, one of the things that stood out to me most was whether we're talking about physical trauma to someone's brain or an emotional trauma like grief or significant loss of a loved one. When we look at either of those traumas uh, within the brain, um, the differences start to disappear in terms of what's happening in the brain. Uh, and that totally changed the way that I think about trauma and how we experience it. Absolutely. I think for, for folks who are going to listen in, uh, I think it's a conversation that helps us pick up some really key insights around demystifying the grief experience putting some hard science to something that is oftentimes treated as just this sort of black box of emotional experience, and also just helping us understand how these individual experiences of loss might us also help us understand how collectively we're all moving through a grief and loss process as a result of all the things upended by the pandemic. So let's, let's, let's not delay and jump into the conversation. One quick note for our listeners, this is our first recording and so please forgive, there's some audio issues when it comes to Lisa's microphone, but I more than promise you that it's it's made up by just really quality content. Once you get over the fact that she sounds a little distant, it's going to be more than worth what you're going to be hearing coming out of her mouth. So please enjoy. So Lisa, thanks for, thanks for having us uh, into your home and thanks for joining us for this conversation. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. To get us started, since you and I know each other so well, John is gonna is gonna is gonna ask some questions to get to get up to speed as to your work and your experience, especially with the book um, Before and After Loss. Yeah, I, I've been reading your book Before and After Loss, which you wrote after the death of your husband, and I, I kind of see the book in two parts. The first part is your personal account of your experience as his health was declining and what that was like for you emotionally. Uh, and then the second half of the book is maybe a more scientific look at what's actually taking place for people from a neurological perspective during the grief process. And I was thinking about how helpful that that is for people who might be experiencing grief to understand 
what they're feeling but maybe can't really put words to. But you started off the book with the beginning of their preface with a quote, I expected grief to be unbearable sadness, but it wasn't that at all. It was profound instability. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, sadness versus instability and how, in terms of how you conceptualize the grief process? Right. So it's nice to meet you and nice to have everybody in my home. You know, I, I think that as a neurologist, uh, you know, I, I care for people with serious neurologic disorders. Uh, so I had come to think that I probably understood loss better than the average person because I saw a lot of people go through a lot of diff- difficult times. And I'd always interpreted it as that they were, you know, just profoundly sad. So, you know, there's not much time to even give a moment's thought when you, a loved one is ill about what it's going to be like afterwards. But if I had even a moment's thought, it would be that I thought that's what I'm going to feel like. So, you know, in the days after uh, my husband Bill was gone, I was just completely thrown off my feet because I was so wrong. Uh, and the experience was so astonishingly different than I had expected. And this, what I meant by instability was, you know, just feeling as if everything had literally changed overnight that the world was seemed like an alien place. Everything, everything had changed the way my perception was of every interaction, everything I saw, every, everything I heard. Everything was turned on its head, basically. And I, and I was just completely unprepared for it, which uh, I found all the more amazing as a health professional for so mm. many years. How did you come to make sense of what was taking place for you at that time, given your field as a neurologist? Well, it it took me a very, very long time to begin to find my way. And although the way you described it, you know, the first half of the book is the experience, and then the second half of the book is this neurologic perspective on the experience, the two parts are very joined Mm -hmm. uh, because... uh, I mean, for one thing, at some point in time, it came to my awareness that I could maybe help myself, and a therapeutic avenue for me would be to research how the brain responds to a serious loss like this. And that maybe if I understood it better, that would give me some way to move forward because I was, I was you know, stuck talking about, you know, I could be fully functional, but in terms of the emotional healing process, I was, you know, well into a second year when I felt, you know, this isn't going as well as I hoped. But then the other part of it is that, you know, I thought in writing the book, once I got around to thinking about writing the book, I felt felt as if the first part, which is the personal experience, gives credibility to the second part, that I didn't want it to appear to readers, and this is targeted for people going through difficult times. I didn't want it to appear appear to readers as if, you know, an expert is jumping in and acting like, oh, well, I know how this is going to be for you and what you should do. But instead, I wanted to give some credibility in saying, you know, I've been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I'm talking about all the parts of how I, how the brain responds, I try to 
link it to the experience that I personally have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was one um, description, I guess you, you cited a statistic that I believe it was in the year after somebody has experienced a profound loss, they're far more likely to fall or get injured. Um, and you shared some of your own personal experiences. That, that was something I wasn't aware of that I, I learned from reading this. I, and, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, when all this is happening to you, it's not as if you can put two, to, two and two together. Yeah. You just, it, it's all like you're doing the best you can. And, you know, I mean, anybody can have a fender bender, you know, uh, anybody can fall for that matter. But then statistically, uh, there's a, a difference. And, you know, I had this whole series of <laughs> small collisions that don't make a whole lot of sense, you know, hitting walls. And the more I read, the more I researched, I found out, well, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. There are these cognitive changes, and it, and it all makes so much sense because part of the bandwidth of your brain has been stolen away to every day cope and compensate uh, and buffer all the things I just said about this alien experience, and you're trying to like act normal while all this other stuff is running through your mind, basically. You know, like a simple interaction, running into somebody in a hallway at work or on the street, the sidewalk, you know, and that could all be quite perilous. Mm. I have one more question about the book, if that's okay. By all means. And then maybe we can switch gears. I know there's some other themes we were going to talk about. But in, in one place, you were describing, kind of making a case for the similarities between complicated grief and PTSD in terms of the, the symptoms that arise and the overlap that exists between them. And then you went on to make a case for chronic traumatic encephalopathy as also overlapping these syndromes. So CTE, uh, before reading this, I'd only ever heard of that in the context of NFL players who've experienced many concussions from playing such a um, physical sport that's known to have many head injuries. And so you were comparing these, I guess, these uh, sets of experience that are characterized by emotional uh, grief or loss or shock and noting these similarities with CTE, which many of us know it has at its origin a physical trauma. And that kind of blew my mind when I read that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how do you see the overlap? Is it overlap in terms of physiologically what's happening in the brain or in terms of how the symptoms present afterwards? Or both. Well, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, and I, and I think that it's um, it's never easy to uh, to uh, come right against uh, hard held beliefs, and uh, that's an example of you know presenting a whole new way of thinking about things. And you know, it's only natural that people are going to like sort of a, uh, withdraw from the whole the whole idea to some extent. In, in our in our profession, in terms of um, the health professions. Uh, there's a strong tendency to uh, to make things narrower and narrower and narrower, and we are, I think, very much at fault in barely pulling back and looking at a large it in a larger view. Uh, and so that's this is an example of attempting to do that. Uh, so you know, in terms of, uh, and I actually published a uh, a paper now. Uh, in a medical journal that's called Emotional Traumatic Brain Injury, mm. 
where I describe this. Uh, wasn't easy to get it published mm. <laughs> for the reasons I just said, you know. But uh, the fact is, I think uh, think about opening your mind to the idea that uh, emotional trauma is causing uh, brain fundamental brain changes, and one can kind of like bounce back and forth between whether you want to call that just changes in brain function or brain dysfunction. But either way, uh, there are profound changes in brain function, of course, that result in changes in your daily activities and your capacities and so forth, as we already touched on. Uh, and that, why is that so fundamentally different than brain functional changes from physical trauma. Hmm. Why is it that emotional trauma is so very different than physical trauma in the way it affects the brain? Well, there are some differences, you know, in terms of the actual, you know, the physical, uh, structural changes macroscopically, the whole brain that could potentially be caused by uh, physical trauma. However, if you start zeroing in more and more, microscopically, uh, more and more, then you start talking about neural circuitry, the wiring of the brain. And at that point, there are changes in the wiring of the brain that's been caused by physical trauma and by emotional trauma. Mm. And they're both wreaking havoc. Mm. And there's a, such a strong overlap between the effects of physical trauma and emotional trauma that people who are experts in physical traumatic brain injury grapple with this problem because they themselves, say for example, a person who in combat experienced physical tra uh, brain trauma, traumatic brain injury, and obviously emotional trauma because they were in this, you know, incredibly difficult situation. So then they themselves, when they're dealing with somebody who's now having changes of their personality, their cognition, um, depression, they themselves are now grappling with, is this a ca caused by the physical trauma or the emotional mm. trauma, or both? And there's a large literature about how do we tease that apart. And I would say, don't try so hard to tease it apart, mm. because... They are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. Well, especially the um, symptoms that that have been publicized about professional athletes who've experienced CTE as a result of uh, repeated concussions tend to be emotional or cognitive changes, um, right. increases in depression, increases in suicidality sleep changes um, there's a, a more impulsivity more yeah uh, more, more irritability I mean all of these things how in the world do you want to figure out whether that was from the physical or emotional mm. trauma and loss mm -hmm. there's only one system on that which that pain and that suffering plays itself out right it's just one system there isn't a separate system for emotional pain and one system for physical pain, right? It's, what you're saying is it's all one system. Teasing it apart is an academic distinction. It's one system. Right, and academicians do that extremely well. They look at it, everything separately. 
You know, it is only in recent years that there's been some emphasis on comorbid diseases, for example. In other words, that people have multiple medical conditions. Well, duh, people have <laughs> multiple medical conditions. Uh, and yet we have been studying each of them so separately that it, it you know, it, it obviously begs the question as to whether our data is correct if you haven't taken that into consideration. Hmm. So let me add a third layer here. So we've been talking about the mental experience, the emotional experience. We're also talking about the physical dimension of that experience, right? Like, remember you opened one of our workshops with a big slide that was all psychology is neurology or something to that extent, mm -hmm. right? That there's this idea that we can't completely separate these two spheres of thinking or, or observation. I want to take a quick break here, folks, to highlight the producer of our episode, John Gloss. John has been helping us to take the idea for this podcast and make it a reality. If you're listening and you're interested in recording your own podcast or if you're a therapist looking to record mindfulness practices for your clients, any sort of audio production at all, please feel free to, to kind of check our, our show notes for contact information uh, so that John can also make you sound really good. So what I want to add here is the third layer of the environmental context around uh, that experience. And namely, I wanted to get you to reflect on this, these continue this conversation around the insights around loss and grief, but now thinking about within the context, like we, we were talking about the physical instability, the mental instability, but for everyone who's experienced major loss during COVID, there's also been this extreme social and environmental sense of instability. There's all these external factors that confound what is already a complex picture that you're painting. And so as someone who's experienced loss, who's studied it and wrote, written a book about it, and now you've experienced, like all of us, uh, the challenges of isolation, I'm really curious to hear what your reflections are, what you imagine or have learned about what people may or might be experiencing grieving within this very strange context that we're living in. Well, you know, the, uh, there's no doubt that the pandemic has been an incredibly unique source of lots of uh, loss and emotional trauma. And I think we're only beginning to understand the, the breadth of that and, and the depth of it uh, for people of all ages in different ways. Uh, and, you know, I mean, some of the things are, are truly, uh, you know, you can't even imagine. It's unimaginable to for people to lose loved ones and not be able to see them in the hospital. Mm. And we never imagined such a horrible event. And no matter what your age, I mean, you had to be 100 years old or older to have lived through a pandemic before. So every for everyone, it was a completely unfamiliar threat. And you couldn't just brush it off and say it's not a threat. It was a threat. Uh, I think the fact that it is incredibly idiosyncratic and unpredictable is another layer of threat. I mean, the fact that you might read in the paper about somebody young and robust who died of COVID, and then I can tell you about patients of mine in their 80s and 90s who survived COVID, COVID mm. even survived being in an ICU with COVID. And I can tell you about loads of people who are COVID positive and asymptomatic. I'm sure you know about this too. So it goes, it, it runs the gamut. And I think that the unpredictability of it is like this other layer of, because medically I can't explain it. And I haven't heard any experts explain it either. Uh, why one person does so poorly and one person does so well. Of course, you know, there are the, uh, I just don't want to look people's losses in terms of their unemployment uh, and 
isolation you mentioned. Uh, so there are all these different layers. You know, where I would come at it is going to be a pattern with my previous response to previous questions now, because uh, I think that from my perspective and from understanding the way the brain responds to threat and trauma, we shouldn't isolate this particular experience as being a completely different kind of a threat and, and that we would respond to it in a completely different way than we would respond to any form of traumatic loss. It is yet another form of emotional trauma and loss. And one of the most interesting questions I always ask myself and can never answer to my satisfaction is, why is it that one person manages so well in the face of a certain type of emotional trauma and, and somebody has the exact same experience and they do not find it as traumatic? I mean, you might think about that as in terms of COVID too. Some people even thrive during this period. You know, they, they found that, gee, not going into work every day and commuting maybe for two plus hours or whatever they were doing, not so bad, you know. Don't have to deal with my angry boss anymore. <laughs> right, right, you know, exactly. I can get more done, far less time, mm -hmm. and, you know, so a little more time for me. Less traffic. Less traffic. <laughs> I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the angst of life or, you know, maybe, maybe I wasn't being compensated enough for that crazy job I was doing. Um, so, you know, on the other hand, there are some people who are just completely overwhelmed by it and I know I know people um, who uh, were so frightened that they never left their house for mm -hmm. a year. You know, so I mean that obviously is not emotionally healthy or physically healthy for that matter. Uh, so so uh, getting back to the idea that it's just another form of loss, uh, I like to envision um, a range or spectrum of um, different severities, different levels of emotional trauma, understanding that for everybody that the way in which that would actually be um, sequenced would be different because, you know, for one person something is much more traumatic than another and vice versa. Uh, but keeping in mind, once you think about your that whole spectrum and range of emotional trauma, that the brain only has a single way to respond to a threat. And emotional trauma and loss, which we oftentimes in popular culture think of as, you know, grieving or something other depression, uh, is from the brain's standpoint, sized up and calibrated as how much of a threat it is. And there's only one part of the brain that does that. It's called the amygdala. It figures out the valence of that threat, and then it responds. And, you know, if for you, John, if for you the biggest loss is the loss of your wonderful companion, your dog, you know, and then you lose your dog suddenly, you know, this could be for you perceived as a mortal threat. And the response to that by the brain is going to be, we've got to protect this guy in order to keep him functional. And that kicks off 
all sorts of cascades mm. that go on and on. And in my case, uh, after the loss of my husband, lasted for a long, long time, and 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 actually never stops. But mm-hmm. then you learn better and better ways to deal with it. Mm. Mm. So I think you kind of just described this idea of like, um, just to borrow a lang- language from the COVID era, right? This idea that's been going around around long COVID, mm. right? This idea that like, in a sense, like. Grief, has, there's a long grief. There's a short grief and there's a long grief. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I'm noticing out in the world is as the world starts to try to emerge from the from the, from the the depth of the pandemic, even though we don't know what the winter has in, in store for us, um, that there's a little bit of an expectation that people should be getting ready to move forward and move on from their losses. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you have any insight as to, like, neurologically, why does it take so long or is that a mystery we don't know why it takes so long to come out of these of these states well i think that the um you know you you, it's important to envision how the neural circuitry is rewired or remodeled by the experience of a serious threat and the um this results in a ramping up of the um, primitive brain, uh, you know, which is very reactive, very emotional, very impulsive, and a diminished responsiveness of the advanced brain, which is the cerebral cortex. Uh, And, you know, one of the key things is that for the person living through anything of this nature, we're all living through things of this nature all the time, basically, it's incredibly how poorly perceptive you are of this. I mean, it's just, you're you're going through the motions of your day. You don't necessarily figure out that these, the way you're reacting to things has changed in this, in this way, but it can be measured for sure. Uh, so, there needs to be some thoughtful and deliberate intervention to undo that uh, abnormal, I'm going to call it, wiring that's now occurred. Uh, and it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not like you just do like one exercise and there you go. Uh, you know, instead, the wiring of the brain can be changed. Uh, and uh, and that's a very hopeful thing, but it has to be done in a very um, deliberate and repetitive manner. Uh, and one of the, the keys to that is the concept of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity just very simply means that the brain is rewired in response to your experience. Uh, and the more I've thought about that over the years, the more I've realized what an incredible tool we all have at our disposal. We don't recognize that we are empowered to utilize neuroplasticity in the way we want to use it. You know, if you want to get out of the mode of being maybe too emotional, too reactive, you can utilize things that you guys know a lot better than me to, you know, gradually move yourself out of that mode and into a more thoughtful, healing mode. You know, say, for example, you just sort of like have some sort of uh, uh, 
impulse that is almost like a panic attack or even a panic attack. Well, you know, how are you going to move to being able to thoughtfully and deliberately think, oh, I've seen this before, I understand this what is happening, and this is a good way for me to handle it, and I'm going to try it. Uh, but, you know, it does. It happens quicker than you think. Neuroplasticity is not, doesn't take forever, uh, but to get it to be something that is durable, it takes quite a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that idea. It sounds like, and your, your question hit on it, Fabio, it can be a long time to heal from a trauma or a loss. Um, but the trauma or loss itself might be uh, might take place over a very short period of time. Somebody could witness uh, something that is horrific or um, if they find themselves in a life-threatening situation uh, that they are fortunate enough to survive, um, maybe the incident only took place in a matter of minutes or hours. At the time of that trauma, is is the brain rewired in such a way that then takes a really long time to wire back to a more healthy uh, state of functioning? Well, that, that's a good question. And, you know, I think it's, it's something that then occurs. Obviously, it wouldn't make any sense that everything just rewires itself like that. Uh, instead... It is the recurrent response to that mm. over a long period of time. You know, uh, just like I referenced before, the fact that there are all these reminders in your day of that, or maybe it's flashbacks. You know, again, we were so accustomed to thinking about flashbacks as only a combat PTSD-related word. You know, that makes no sense. No sense. I mean, you know, you know, you, you folks work with people who have had losses. You know that they experience in their day the equivalent of a flashback. Definitely, you know, yeah. As some sort of a reminder, and the whole thing just floods all back. Uh, and, you know, these things are incredibly personal. You would never know that that particular thing, as, as you're going into a situation, the person cannot predict, oh, sometimes you could say, I know this isn't a good situation for me, but sometimes you cannot. Mm. And something just sort of like trips off or triggers the memory. And every time that happens, you're reinforcing and strengthening this dysfunctional uh, neural circuitry. Mm. So something traumatic happens. And then in the aftermath of that, the way that people are processing it or reliving it uh, could be reinforcing uh, some different neural pathways that are leading to the kind of post-traumatic experience. And then at some point, or maybe concurrently in some way, uh, the healing process is yet another uh, long-standing or over a period of time reworking and changing the way that people are making associations and, and processing it after the fact. Right. I, I think of it as the, the goal is to reconnect so the more the disconnection exists, the, the uh, cortex, our advanced brain, our thinking brain, isn't accessible to, you know, uh, explain and calm down the emotional brain, the primitive brain. Think about all the times that you bring 
some rational thought to bear to calm yourself down. You know, you might say, oh, everybody I know is going to get COVID. Then you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't see any evidence that that's going to occur. And you just sort of calm yourself down. Kind of, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm out of control here. Uh, so imagine if you're disabled by not having access to that mm. calming process. So that is where the effect of emotional trauma uh, starts to really wreak havoc. And I, I think that if um, the individual is not made aware of these processes, it's hard for them to summon the ener energy and motivation to think, I, I need to work on this to recreate, to recreate, to remodel those connections and get back to my normal state. I want to pick up on that because I think that, that gets at not just the content of your book, but the, the existence of your book in the first place. This idea of educating people about what's going on inside of them. Um, and I wonder if you could, we could, we could talk about that from the lens of your other research around this idea of confidence, confidence in managing chronic conditions. And um, I, I don't know where you want to start with that, but I think that's an interesting concept that I, I remember you speaking when it comes to Parkinson's patients and in your research in that area? So, you know, from very early on, maybe the very beginning of my career, I've always been interested in the concept of uh, patient empowerment and the um, degree to which individuals uh, can control or bring more control into their lives. You know, one can always uh, envision a new diagnosis, especially of a serious neurologic illness, as you know, a very um, disturbing uh, factor that's now going to result in a lot of loss of control of people in their life, a feeling of loss of control. And so, you know, as a physician, I think that uh, well, what are my tools? What can be my tools to help them get back on their feet? Uh, and what you observe is that some people figure it out, and some people don't. Some people are knocked off their feet permanently. They just can't ever quite get their balance again uh, after difficult, disturbing, traumatic news like that. Uh, so uh, that relates to this issue of confidence, and um, the term is self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the confidence in your abilities to manage a certain situation or your belief that you can manage a certain situation. So, you know, if you just apply that, say somebody has a serious disease, like in my uh, own practice, Parkinson's disease or related problems. So some people are going to come to this decision at some point that they can continue to travel internationally and do the kinds of great holidays they used to do uh, because they're going to have developed the confidence that, yes, I have some symptoms. Yes, I have to take medication. Yes, maybe some new things will develop. How am I going to manage jet lag with all these medicines? You know, but I think I can figure it out. And then somebody else is going to have a loss of confidence, a loss of belief in themselves, and they're going to constrain their life. They're going to say, no, some of those things aren't for me anymore, even though it's not the case. You know, this is why experts in the field of, field of disability talk about 
that disability is really in the mind of the person mm -hmm. to a large extent. People are deciding what they can do with their function. When I was writing the book, I wrote a chapter about self-efficacy because I realized experts in self-efficacy will tell you never use the word alone. You have to say self-efficacy for something because mm. nobody is confident at everything. You know, I don't know about you. I don't know. Are you confident that you can climb Mount Everest? Probably not, but some people are. So you don't have self-efficacy for that. Uh, but uh, in this way, I suddenly, as I was writing the book, came to the conclusion, oh, how about self-efficacy for loss, self-efficacy mm. for grief? How do you develop confidence that you can manage this loss? And that that is a path towards healing, like working towards that goal. So what does that look like in terms of this state of the world that we're in right now? Uh, people that are experiencing the era of COVID. Maybe we'll start there. Yeah. You know, it's hard to be judgmental about people's way of coping with COVID. You know, I think that there's been a, a large range of reactions to COVID. And uh, so in many ways, it just seems it's politically incorrect for sure to say, I know the way to... <laughs> properly respond to COVID, and, and you don't. But, uh, you know, I think that we can talk in terms of there being some extremes. Uh, and, you know, if for an individual who hasn't left their house or hardly left their house for a very long time, uh, learning to take a small risk and do something new, I would think is a, a healthy step for them. You know, for example, going maybe the first time to a restaurant eating at an outdoor table. You know, that would be potentially for them a very healing experience because, you know, when you do that, you after you do something, you always feel like more confident. You go, oh, I did that. I'm still here. I, you know, didn't perish. I can do that again. Uh, so I think that those would be the kinds of steps that you need to look at what you're doing and especially since we're in a world now that is mostly vaccinated in the state of Maryland, uh, then we could uh, be talking in terms of that it is time to be taking those steps. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that aspect of isolation for me is is really critical in the work that I do. Um, and, it, and one insight that, that showed up for me in your book was to, to kind of see an elegance between um, no, learning about how different regions of the brain are protectively disconnecting from each other, or that the brain is disconnecting, like as you said, the primitive brain from the from the sort of more evolved brain, and that there's this concurrent um, social disconnection that, that happens oftentimes in, in grief, that because folks are not feeling that self-efficacy, because a lot of social relationships can suddenly feel incredibly taxing and difficult, that people start to withdraw. Um, and that after going through, if, if that withdrawal sort of holds for a long period of time, thinking from this framework of like that the maladaptive response holding over time changes the brain wiring, that then coming out of that state of isolation is really hard. And what you're saying that thinking from that neuroplasticity point of view, we have to make these small, repetitive, constant interventions to slowly like not do it all at once, that someone can't just come out of isolation, that there needs to be this process in which we, in a sense, like rewire that, that, that part that's become um, 
afraid of social interactions or unaccustomed, simply unaccustomed to them and, and reactive to them? Well, I'm actually very interested in um, what the two of you think about the balance of um, socialization and, um, and having solitude to do the inner work that's required. You know, I think that that is um, a very tricky thing. And, you know, uh, I've known people who, after a serious loss, have felt that they had to be constantly busy, uh, constantly travel, or, you know, in order, and of course, when are they ever stopping? At some point, they're going to come home and go, oh, and have to do deal with what should have been dealt with uh, previously, or begin to deal with it. Uh, but by the same token, then, too much solitude isn't the answer either because you know what we've learned from the standpoint of say neurology is that uh, a healthy brain uh, requires a combination of social activity cognitive activity and physical activity you need all those components and you can demonstrate that the brain suffers from not having all of those would you know three-legged three-legged stool uh, components uh, so uh, I don't think it's so easy to actually figure figure that out in your own life. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a, a great point. Um, I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking that even people who have not experienced loss or grief are uh, constantly busying themselves and uh, filling every possible ounce of time with um, some form of input. Uh, and so that makes me think that it's not just that people need a balance of uh, physical and emotional and, and social uh, um, health, but it's, it's the, the quality of each of those pieces. So there are higher quality social activities if you're spending time with with close friends, if you have people that you identify as um, uh, uh, trusted or uh, safe members of your family or community, uh, inner, inner circle of friends. Um, but then we have social media, which is very superficial uh, uh, social contact um, that I don't think is doing the same thing uh, for the, the social needs that we have. Yeah, I like that in terms of like an understanding of like social nutrition. Mm, there's like yeah, good social like stuff that. and not so good social stuff. Because I find that too, that it's, I find it there, there's an innate wisdom in that protective dissociation socially in the beginning of grief because I find that most people don't know how to react to loss. And so it can be a safe thing to be like, I'm just going to stay away from most people because it can be really hurtful sometimes the way that people who don't understand grief react to someone who's had a loss. So I think there's a wisdom in like, let me shut the world away and give myself some time to like, make sense of just my, my own experience in solitude. And then what I see over time is this dance in which a healthy amount of solitude helps someone reach a level of sense and meaning and insight in their private sphere. And then they bring that into a social space and there's this exchange, there's a validation of what that, that healing process has begun to kind of consolidate internally. And then the person like retreats back into solitude to some more work. What I think is so hard nowadays is the absence of these like healthy and consistent social spaces. Mm. 
I think with the pandemic, but also we were talking about this pre-pandemic, right? That especially for older individuals in our society, there, there's just a, a growing rate of isolation that was already termed a crisis, a, a sort of a public health crisis before COVID, right? The UK had a minister of loneliness before social isolation and pandemic uh, lockdown. So while I do think that, yes, it's a balance act between the solitude and the social connection, I think as a therapist in 2021, my, my focus is really like, I know there will be lots of spaces for solitude. How do we create healthy and consistent spaces for social exchange? Because they seem to be very sort of up to chance nowadays. I really uh, agree that I think uh, we overrate how much others are going to be comforting to us when we're suffering terrible loss. Uh, probably others can be more helpful when you're suffering minor loss. But when you're suffering very, very serious loss, mm. it's so deeply personal. Uh, and, and I think we're, we're sort of like programmed to think it's going to be very helpful. And, and so it not, it's, it's doubly bad because uh, it not only isn't as helpful, but then it disappoints you <clears throat> because you thought, you know, you thought this is going to make me feel better when I see this person and talk to them. And then you might find that that person actually is working with their grief. They're working over their grief about the loss of, say, your spouse, your parents, your whatever. Uh, and you're thinking, oh, that's the least thing I need right now. You're hearing about somebody else having, you know. They're not problems. available to you, right? They're not available, right. Mm. So uh, that's one issue. You know, another layer I just want to touch upon is the is Zoom. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what your... Uh, professional and personal experience has been, but uh, I was amazed that I could spend six or seven hours a day on Zoom with people and feel so lonely at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. There is something that is intangible about being in person with somebody that it does and Zoom is pretty good. And that, you know, it's a pretty good way of communicating, but it isn't the same. Mm -hmm. I find that when I when I have those experiences, it's a very mental connection. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like my body is present in those moments. I think that's that's one thing I've noticed. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with what you're both saying. On one hand, I think I'm thinking also thinking about it a little bit differently. Um, you know, my experience prior to the pandemic, and I think it seemed like a lot of people uh, I know were experiencing something similar where your day-to-day -day life is just so busy and you're going from one thing to the next and there's no time to uh, really stop and slow down and it takes a lot of a lot more work and uh, deliberate effort to build in some of these quality social connections. And then in the beginning of the pandemic, people were reconnecting with old friends over Zoom or whatever other... Uh, technology um, in a way that there just wasn't time for before. Um, I personally was able to connect with some old friends that I you know, was very close with at some time in my past and haven't talked to in a while, and now we could play Pictionary um, <laughs> online uh, 3,000 miles away um, or just kind of catch up and, and see and have a face-to-face air quotes, face-to-face -face conversation with somebody that I haven't talked to in a, a long time, that there just wasn't time in our busy lives to coordinate that beforehand. So 
I, I could see both sides of it. Yeah, that's a cool illustration, I think, of also tying it back to grief, how sometimes, and I think the pandemic too, is how sometimes in the middle of a crisis, there's also these fascinating and positive changes and developments that happen. I'm just thinking of all the folks who've had really difficult experiences during the pandemic who um, are now in a stage in our therapeutic work where they're, they're rediscovering themselves. They're quitting their job. They're moving to a different city. We're, we're seeing record rates of people quitting jobs and changing careers. I think that's also another core feature, I think, and why sometimes I think of grief and loss when it's not reacting in this disordered way is a developmental stage that you you become disillusioned with something or you lose something and it forces this crisis of reinvention and and things things that are unexpected bright spots that we noticed mm. uh, not to minimize the suffering of the pandemic but there were these unexpected developments that took place because the world got turned upside down and everything got kind of shook loose in a sense mm. yeah. so i'd like to transition um into a little bit of a thought experiment just for fun um i wanted to just kind of wrap up by, by, by thinking about this, tying together these ideas of, of what you've discovered in your book, um, what, uh, what you were just talking about in terms of self-efficacy. Um, and I want to run a fictitious thought experiment with you both, right? So I'm gonna, I want us to imagine that we're, we're, doing, we're doing a little research for, for a paper around um, educating bereaved people about what's going on in the brain, right? So we've got a control group that after their loss, let's say six weeks after the loss, in the mail, they're gonna get like a little card that has like a bunch of platitudes, like time heals all wounds, be sure to take care of yourself, you know, spend time with friends and family, think also of the positive times, right? Boilerplate like, you know, grief and loss stuff. And then there's a second group and that second group gets another little card. And on that card is something that touches on these insights about like what to expect, what to expect, what to communicate to people. So I know it's kind of artificial because I'm trying to shrink this down into like a little card that you put in the mail. But if you could think of like a message, some piece of insight that you feel could help give, give someone just that first step in that self-efficacy to understand what they're about to experience. That's good, Fabio. <laughs> you've been you've been uh, holding that card in your back pocket for a while. I've been thinking about that question a lot. <laughs> I'm gonna take a moment. Yeah. yeah. The, the, we can also think out loud. The fortune cookie. The, uh, yeah, the fortune of, uh, cookie of helpful grief. Education. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, the hard, the hard part for me about your thought experiment is whittling it down to the card. Yeah. Mm. You know, that, that It could be a really hard. big card. It could be a very big card. <laughs> Poster <laughs> board. You know, I, I think that, uh, and, and you can think through this with me, uh, mm. because what it makes me think is that uh, I, want, I want to communicate that we're all connected and that even though a serious loss makes you feel like you're the only one who ever felt this way, that we are all having that experience that is incredibly similar when we have a serious loss. So, you know, my card would include that. 
Mm-hmm. We don't realize how our brains are wired in the identical way. We are, we are, you know, human beings, and we all don't have different brains. Uh, we have very similar brains. So when we have a serious emotionally traumatic experience, we respond in very similar ways. And if there's anything I learn by giving about 50 or so talks to people who've had, uh, you know, losses like this, is that everybody says, this, this has happened to me, and then everybody else in their room nods. Yep, that's happened to me too. And I'm sure that it, even though it seems that was a bizarre thing I thought I was doing when I put on my husband's sweater, I thought that was a bizarre thing that only I was thinking I needed to do. And everybody's going, oh, I did it with this, and I did mm. it with that. Uh, so we all uh, have something in common, and that's comforting to know. Because otherwise it feels like you, know, it's, it's, you get into that I'm, maybe I'm going crazy period where you feel I'm the only one that's just thinking these ways. So then another part would be about uh, raising awareness about how, what I talked about before, about how loss is perceived by our brain as a threat to our survival. That would be one of the major points I would want to make. You know, the, the brain does not have different areas that deal with the death of a uh, parent, uh, a sudden loss of employment, a divorce, or combat-related PTSD. No, there's no, no such thing. The brain has only one area hmm. to deal with emotional trauma. And it's going to gauge it all in the same way, based on how much of a threat to your identity and to your being that thing is, and then it's going to respond in the identical way to all those things Hmm. at different levels. So that, I think, is also very, very important to understand. Uh, And I never, I mean, that probably is the most startling thing I read when I read I tried to find who's the first person who said that, but when somebody said that the brain reacts to emotional loss, to traumatic loss, as a threat to your survival, that completely blew my mind. It was a new way to think about it. Totally. And then I would move into the aspect of um, the things we discussed about how the brain is remodeled because of this threat and what the individual can do to heal those changes. So those would be like the major points I would want to uh, hit in my tiny card. <laughs> I like that. But I, what I hear you saying is like the first, like there's a universality to the experience which is interesting to what we were just talking about, the, the isolating nature of grief, that oftentimes you find like the people around you don't understand. But getting a message maybe from someone that you know knows the experience to say like, while each grief is, is as unique as the two people involved, the person who was lost or the thing that was lost and the person who's experiencing it, as unique and unlike any other loss that is, there's also because of this shared kind of hardware that we have, there's a universality to what we can expect um, might be some of these reactions. 
And then I think part of what I hear within this idea of the threat to survival is it helps me think of those reactions as fundamentally good in a sense. And what I mean is like they're protective reactions. They're not there to harm you. It's your brain's evolved attempt to try and keep you safe. And for me, there's something reassuring about that, that like you feel like you're going crazy, but there's this evolutionary logic to what you're experiencing. And that to me is like, it's like, it's like basically telling you like, yeah, you're going to experience a ton of instability, but there's a reason. It's not just randomness. There's a, there's a weird logic. There's a neurological logic to things disconnecting. Totally. That is so well put. This is an evolutionary adaptation to maintain your survival in the worst of times. And if we didn't have that wiring, uh, when we were in the midst of a catastrophe, we would be unable to function. We would become completely unable to care for ourselves. We uh, might be unable to save a loved one who was in an accident. We would be so frozen. Instead, our brain has evolved to have ways to take all that emotional stuff offline and keep you moving. Mm, compartmentalizing. That's right. That's a very good thing. And without it, we wouldn't survive, period. But it's a very bad thing for your emotional health. Mm. If it sticks around, in a sense. If it sticks right. around it's too a, long. That's right. It's a yeah. very, it, that's right. So the brain defaults to, to one thing to keep us, to help us survive, but it has this consequence that is not good for our emotional health over time. And that's what really helped me as a therapist after, after working with you and collaborating with you is, this, is being able to, in a more informed way, help people do this dance in therapy where you accept that the reaction you're having is not a bad reaction, right? That it's to understand where it comes from, to understand like this logic, this evolutionary logic around what we a lot of times see in therapy, which are protective responses, defensive responses to trauma, to, to neglect and childhood, all kinds of different things to understand where it comes from and see the goodness in, in it showing up to try to protect you. Uh, also, um, you know, we don't want to stay in a dissociative state. We don't want to stay in a hypervigilant state in PTSD, for example. So it's this dance of like acceptance while also wanting to change, not not um, seeing the not seeing things purely as disorder in the sense that it's wrong. There's a disease like an outside infection. This is coming from within your body. It's a response that's trying to protect you like a like an inflammation response. that's very uncomfortable, but it's your your body's attempt to try and help you. You know, the, um, my favorite chapter in the book, uh, we have a touchstone, uh, which is the chapter, as you know, Fabio, about dreams. Mm-hmm. That is my favorite chapter. Yeah. Uh, I never expected to write a chapter about dreams. And uh, I, uh, in writing the book, I became more and more um, focused on this issue of the disconnect between the uh, advanced brain and the primitive brain and how um, a lot of the uh, disturbing memories and emotions that you're not ready to deal with are suppressed into your subconscious Mm. and they're not accessible to you. And then I was thinking um, quite literally, well, how how do you ever find and recapture those subconscious uh, images and thoughts and memories again 
uh, because that seemed to me that's part of healing. You can't leave it suppressed forever. And uh, then, of course, in my reading, I came on, oh, you know, of course, dreams. That's what dreams are. Dreams are what's in our subconscious and what we can't consolidate easily. Mm. It's, what's, it's what's disturbing us. And uh, so uh, I had already started uh, a dream journal just spontaneously because I thought there, like many people, I was experiencing more vivid dreams than normal. And I just started to scribble them. They seemed ridiculous, of course. Uh, and then over time, I realized, well, no, they're not that ridiculous because I start, began to see sequences and stories that I could begin to see over time within these dreams. And what is quite astonishing is when you read up, and there isn't enough about quality literature about dreams, really, but when you find that, or at least some studies about what people dream about following traumatic loss, mm. what you find is an incredible similarity between what people dream about. And it echoes what we were saying about how our brains are wired in such similar ways. Mm. That when we are dealing with these difficult experiences, they could be completely different, different types of experiences, but yet our dreams start to look similar in various ways. Oh. It's like very Jungian, like collective unconscious. Yes, precisely right, precisely right. So I think that that's, you know, also a very, um, frankly, reassuring thing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that we and you more than me, actually, in your daily work, you know, need to think about, well, how do you help people surface what they've buried? Of course, that's what you're thinking about all the time. They're not aware. And how can we surface it? Well, dreams just happen to be one of those things. Uh, and that's... The more, and then when you're doing all of the analysis, brainstorming to figure out what could this possibly mean, that is a extraordinarily therapeutic process because you're kind of like trying. You don't realize it, but what are you doing? You're trying to unearth something that's been hidden from you. That's my favorite thing. It's not so much the dream, but what a powerful dream does to the mind. If that dream sticks and the person remembers it, they write it down, then the dream lives almost like a memory inside of them and it has it, it plays a role inside in, in the inner dialogue and the and the analysis. Right. Yeah. So it is I mean, it is the work. And I, and I do say that in the book. The idea is not to analyze the dream properly, because who knows? <laughs> Our minds are very complicated places. Um, the idea is the work. Hmm. to work and think it through. What could this mean based on my memories and experiences hmm. and so forth? And that is really where you're going. It's like a great book, right? And all, this, all the thinking that it stimulates. Right, exactly. Do you work with your patients uh, exploring dreams, their dreams? I don't do that. Uh, a neurologist has more than enough <laughs> boxes to check. For sure. Literally, right on the... <laughs> Boxes to check. <laughs> I cannot add another box. <laughs> so I'm aware that you are writing a new book. I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what this this new work is about, and uh... <laughs> if you feel comfortable speaking about it right. publicly, but it'd be cool for you to tease. I'm trying something uh, um, 
very, very different. Uh, it's a book of fiction. Uh, it, however, focuses on um, my personal and work-related experiences because it focuses on the experience of people going through serious illness and the perspectives of the person going through a serious illness and the perspective of their family, their doctor, the different angles that people, the different experiences people have surrounding uh, a new diagnosis. Mm. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed your book, Before and After Loss, um, and I've gotten a lot out of reading it, and I, I can't wait to get my hands on your new work uh, as soon as it's available. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, and uh, this, was, this was great. Thanks for a great questions. I enjoyed it. Yes, Lisa Thank Shulman. You, Lisa. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks again to Dr. Lisa Shulman. So that's been another episode of Insight Download. If you like what you heard, please take some time to give us a, a favorable rating online, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, shoot off this episode to other people who might benefit from some of these ideas. Because again, our main purpose here is to try to collect and disseminate ideas that we think are really helpful ideas. Uh, for the world around us. I know that uh, the podcasts that I'm most likely to listen to are the ones that uh, a friend has sent me when they think, oh, hey, John, I, I thought of you. I really think that you'd be interested in this topic. So if you listen to this conversation and you thought of a friend, family member, a colleague, please go ahead, send this conversation to them. Let them know what made you think of them and help to spread the word. If you have any suggestions about further guests that we could interview or topics that we should explore, please hit us up. Check the show notes for contact information and how to reach John and I. Uh, with that, I'm Fabio Lomolino. I'm John Gorman. And thanks for joining us.